0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 6. Tonight we're obviously back in the Gospel of Mark after a few months out. Uh, And we're going to be looking at Mark, Chapter 6, 6 verse 53 through Mark chapter 7, verse 13. And this evening, I'll be preaching to you about legalism and the doctrine of Christian liberty, also known as the doctrine of the liberty of conscience. Um, And this is honestly one of my favorite things to preach about. Um, I, I love this doctrine of Christian liberty, and I probably love it so much because I was raised in a very legalistic church. And understanding this doctrine radically changed how I perceive Christianity, Now, when I say legalism, I know not all of you are are big theology nerds, Uh, you should know that that word, legalism, I'm going to use it a lot this evening, it can mean a few different things, but I think primarily it gets used two different ways. The first kind of legalism we could talk about is uh, a form of religion where the adherent seeks to make themselves right before God, right? They seek to justify themselves or save themselves by obedience to a set of rules, Those rules can be man-made or those rules could be God-given. But in this kind of religion, this legalistic religion, salvation comes by works and obedience. Now, faith may or may not be mixed in there as well, but works and obedience really take the center stage in a person's salvation. And that kind of religion, legalism, is a heresy. It's a damning form of religion. It's opposed to Christianity. It's opposed to the work of Jesus. Right? The Bible very clearly teaches us that sinners are saved not by obedience at all, but rather are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Right? Now, works are the evidence of saving faith, and God causes those who trust in Christ to grow in obedience to his commandments. But nevertheless, our salvation rests in Christ's perfect righteousness, his atoning and wrath of God's satisfying death in our place, and his resurrection from the dead, as we just confessed earlier. Our, our salvation is worked by Christ. It's all about him and what he has done. It's not about what we do. We receive Christ and his work by faith alone, and as a result, are made right with God. Then God begins to work obedience in our hearts. So, you can see it's pretty easy. Um, It's pretty easy to see that this first form of legalism, this works based righteousness, really denies the core of our faith and is at odds with the biblical gospel. It's a damning kind of religion. But the second way we can talk about legalism is adding to the Word of God, adding man made commandments to God's law, binding the consciences of people with man made ideas about religion and morality, and ethics, and trying to pass man-made ideas off as if God himself had said those things. This kind of legalism takes the traditions, rules, and opinions of men and makes them equal to the word of God. It's where man takes his rules and, again, makes them equal to God's word. This kind of legalism is also at odds with biblical Christianity. The, the, The Bible is clear that we are obligated to follow God and not men. And God, being supreme over all mankind, is the only being who has the authority to give ultimate and universally binding commandments to mankind. God alone is Lord over the consciences of men. He alone can give universal law. He alone gets to determine and set the standard for what constitutes sin and what constitutes righteousness. That's up for him to decide, not men. And therefore, as you'll see later in the sermon, To add man-made rules and ideas to the Word of God is blasphemy. Because in doing so, you're equating men with God. And tonight, we're going to focus on that second form of legalism. I think next week we're probably going to look at the first. But tonight, we're going to look at the second kind of legalism. That adding man-made traditions or man-made rules to God's Word. And let me tell you this. If I understand anything from the Gospels... And how Jesus interacts with people who do either of the two things that I've mentioned. right? Whenever Jesus interacts with legalists, I can say I've learned one thing if I know nothing else. Jesus hates legalism. Jesus hates all forms of legalism. In the Gospels, he goes, Jesus goes after the legalists, the Pharisees, harder than anybody else. Right? He had no patience whatsoever for their traditions and false form of religion. Jesus refutes the nonsense of legalism very clearly in multiple passages throughout the Gospels. And tonight, we're going to look at one of them. Right? In Mark chapter 7, Jesus absolutely tears the Pharisees and their traditions to shreds. And in doing so, Jesus shows us what freedom that we have in him. Freedom from man-made religion. Freedom to obey God alone. Freedom from anything contrary to or not found in the Bible. We have freedom, and that's what I hope you walk away seeing, Christian. So now if you would, as a sign of respect for our God, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 6, verse 53 and following. When they had crossed over... They came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, that's Jesus, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you this evening and we ask for you to teach us from your word. Please, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds and our hearts to understand your truth. Help us to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word so that we would see your glory, Christ's work for us, our freedom and our duties as your people. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You guys may be seated. Now, before we jump into the doctrine of Christian liberty, uh, I want to quickly walk through and summarize this text so you can see what's going on here, and then I'll be referencing it kind of throughout the sermon. So at the end of chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples, they get off the boat, right? You'll remember three or four months ago, we looked at the text where Jesus walked on the water. Right? And then they go into the region of Gennesaret. And wherever they go, Jesus is healing people. People are flocking to him in the countryside, in villages, and cities. And they're bringing the sick to him so that he can heal them. People were glad. right, And, and, and they, they were glad that Jesus came to their region. They may not have all believed in him savingly, but they at least recognized that he could heal. So they gladly came to him. And Jesus, the merciful and gracious Lord that he is, he was glad to heal them. He healed. The text says, "All who came to him in that region, he healed them." So Jesus is doing all of this good. He's showing mercy and kindness. He's preaching the good news that the kingdom of God had come with him. He's healing the sick to give proof that he's king of the kingdom, right? That he is the Messiah. So who would have a problem with that? Who who would have what godly believing Jew would have a problem with Jesus? They wouldn't. A believing Jew wouldn't. In fact, the believing Jews received him and his message gladly. But now enter the Pharisees in chapter 7. And I think that Mark may have intended us to see the contrast between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Right? Because the legalistic Pharisees have a bone to pick with Jesus, who's done no wrong. Now you'll remember the Pharisees, right? Some brush up on this. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. Right? They're the very obedient model citizen, right, upstanding citizens of Israel, right, very externally righteous. And they're also the most proud and self-righteous people you ever met in your entire life. They're the most self-righteous people in the land. They were legalists in both senses of the word that I, I told you earlier. They thought that their right standing with God and, and their salvation came through obedience to the law and... They added a ton of their own traditions to the Word of God, their oral tradition. I believe it's called the Halakha in Hebrew. Um, They they had a ton of rules, guys, probably more rules than than most of us realize. Um, This is a little bit anachronistic, um, (laughs) but I I got online this past week, and, and I looked up what's called the Talmud. Right, so this is a bit anachronistic. The Talmud was made after Jesus' time. But the Talmud is a collection of all the Jewish rabbinical traditions and expositions of those traditions. And I found a comprehensive set of the Talmud, and it was 74 volumes long. Big, thick books on all their traditions. Yeah, that many rules. <laughs> right rather that many rules plus explanations of the rules rules upon rules upon rules right and their traditions were burdensome right? you could imagine that'd be a burden wouldn't it and to top it all off their traditions were not found in the bible see what they would do is they would start off with a seed of truth from the bible and then from there they would expound on that little bit of truth until they had formed tons of new laws that eventually end up warping the original law to where it no longer looks anything like what the Bible originally said. And over time, their traditions ended up being viewed by them and most of the people around them as being equal to the word of God. So then, in their mind, to break one of their rules, one of their traditions was then considered a sin against God. I actually read a quote from an ancient rabbi that said, the oral law, right, the tradition of the elders is more precious than the written word of God. That became kind of a common thought among some of the Pharisees at the time. They were zealous for their traditions. You remember Paul in Philippians says he was zealous for his traditions. And they condemned everyone who didn't fall in line with their man-made rules. And Mark says that some of these Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 7, they come to Jerus- They come to Jesus from Jerusalem. And this made me laugh. That's like 92 miles away. Right? Like they have come on a mission. They did not just happen across Jesus in the region of Gennesaret. Right? They're, they're trying to get him. Right? They're trying to get some dirt on Jesus, which good luck with that. Right? But when they come to Jesus to, to when they come to Jesus to try to question him or whatever they had on their mind they see that some of Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands according to their traditions. Um, Now, this hand-washing had nothing to do with hygiene. It actually made me laugh that I'm talking about hand-washing during what people call a pandemic. made me chuckle. Uh, It has nothing to do with hygiene. Uh, It was a ritual, right? Uh, It was a ceremony that the Pharisees had conjured up that they claimed was based on a law in the book of Leviticus. Now, to be honest, there is a law in the book of Leviticus, that says that before a priest offers sacrifice, he has to wash his hands. But that's it, just for the priest, just when he's getting ready to wash or, or, or offer a sacrifice. But there is no law for regular people about washing your hands before you eat, though I would recommend it to you. Um, right? But the Pharisees had made this one up. Right? And Mark shows us in verses 3 and 4 that they had many traditions about washing cups, pots, copper vessels, dining couches, their hands, and even their whole bodies. If they went out to the marketplace, they'd come back and submerge their whole body ritualistically in water. And again, all of these rules were about ritual cleanliness. It's not about hygiene. And again, to be honest, there are regulations in the Old Testament about ritual purity and ritual washing. But none of these things are found in the Old Testament. These are man-made rules and regulations that the Pharisees had made equal with the law of God. In their minds, to not wash in these ways was to sin. It, to break the traditions of the elders, to break the oral law, was to sin against God, even though God never gave those commandments. I'm going to labor that point, by the way. So then in verse 5, the Pharisees essentially, what they're doing is they're accusing Jesus' disciples of sinning. Right? They ask Jesus, And you can can hear the self-righteousness if you know anything about the Pharisees. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They're accusing the disciples of breaking God's law and being unrighteous because they're not doing what the tradition of the Pharisees demands of them. And Jesus doesn't take very kindly to that, does he? He doesn't take very kindly to that at all. He, in modern language... Goes in on them, right? Like he absolutely goes off. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's harsh. Jesus starts by calling them hypocrites. You play actors, you stage actors, you fakes, you phonies. Right, this is harsh language. They say high, good things about God, and they claim to love God, but in reality, Jesus says they don't know God, and they don't love him at all. And why does Jesus say that? Well, look at what they do. Jesus says here that they make their tradition equal to the word of God. That's Jesus' problem with them here. In verse 7, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he says that God calls what the Pharisees are doing vain worship. It's not true piety. It's false piety. God didn't command their traditions. It's self-righteousness. And God hates self-righteousness. Not only that, but they're trying to pass off their traditions as if God had given them. God hates this. And I hope to expound on that here in a little while. Then Jesus gives an example of how they forsake God's law in order to keep their traditions. He does that in verses 9 through 13. He reminds them that God, through Moses, had given the fifth commandment. Right? We read it every week. Honor your father and your mother. And God had also given a penalty to those who disrespect their parents, the death penalty. And every Jew, and hopefully us too, because I preached on it a while back, every Jew knew that part of the fifth commandment meant that you are to take care of your parents in their old age when they can't take care of themselves anymore. You are to honor your parents by caring for and providing for them when they're too old to do it for themselves. And part of caring for your parents is to financially take care of them if they need it. But the Pharisees had a tradition, right? And that tradition said that if you vowed your wealth and your property to the temple, then nobody else could use your wealth or your belongings. Now, this one's a little bit complicated, so bear with me here. This tradition of vowing your things to God that Jesus mentions, uh, the Corban vow, right, has its roots in Old Testament vows. Under the Old Covenant, you could promise to give something to God, and in doing so, you would give it to the temple. But this tradition was like deferred giving. It was like making a will, right? If you made this vow, then the temple gets your stuff when you die. But as long as you're alive, you get to keep your stuff. Furthermore, you get to use your stuff as you see fit until you die. You can use it, you can sell it, you can spend it. It's your stuff, But nobody else could benefit from your possessions or your property, only you, because it was given to God. So out of greed or out of spite towards your parents, you could vow your things to God, and now you're not allowed to help your parents or provide for them. And it was looked upon horribly to try to back out of this vow, even though this vow was an ungodly vow to begin with and therefore illegitimate. But since it was looked upon so badly to break this vow, nobody really broke it ever. It's easy to see then that this kind of vow uh, to give your stuff to God would then come into conflict with the fifth commandment, wouldn't it? You're told by God to take care of your parents in their old age. But this tradition said, well, if you vowed your things to God already, then you can't take care of your parents. And so the tradition ended up trumping the fifth commandment. The tradition of the Pharisees ended up actually overriding the word of God. Their tradition wasn't just considered equal with God's word at that point. It was actually considered more binding than God's own word. Since you, according to them, were more obligated to keep the tradition than you were to obey the fifth commandment. Like Jesus said, they made the word of God void by their tradition. They canceled out what God said by virtue of their man-made rules. And the kicker is that this is not an isolated incident. How does Jesus end the paragraph? And many such things you do. He said, this is just one example of the nonsense you Pharisees do. They had many traditions that came into conflict with the word of God. They really were hypocrites. They really were hypocrites. They loved their rules and their ceremonies and their traditions more than they loved God and obedience to him. That's why they're hypocrites. They say they love God, but really they love their man-made tradition. Now, to summarize all this, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they accuse his disciples of sinning because they didn't keep their tradition. Jesus then responds by showing them that their traditions are worthless and, in fact, often contradict the word of God. More than that, Jesus tells them that God hates their traditions because they take man's word and make it equal to God's word. In this text... Jesus makes something very clear to us. He he shows, or you could say recovers, a doctrine that had been trampled on for centuries by the Jewish leaders, and it's the doctrine of the liberty of conscience. It's the doctrine of Christian liberty. And that doctrine simply means that, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are free. Jesus has set us free. But how are we free in Christ? Right, how has Jesus, what are the ways that Jesus has set us free? What I'm going to do is I'm going to remind you of two ways Jesus has set you free, and then you're going to see how those two ways then lead into what this text is about, right? So bear with me for a minute, because they all go together. First, Jesus has set his people free from our guilt and our condemnation, right? The condemnation that's due to us because of our sin. By taking our sins upon himself on the cross— And suffering the wrath of God in our place, he has taken our sins away from us. He suffered the wrath of God, again, in our place. And he's put away the hatred and anger of God on our behalf by his cross. He's freed us from the wrath of God that we so justly deserve for our sins. So we're free from condemnation now. And we've received this liberty from condemnation and guilt and eternal punishment through faith alone in Christ alone. By faith in Jesus, we've been set free from what we should be getting. We've been set free from the penalty due to us for our sin. We've been set free from our alienation to God. As Paul tells us in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that. A second way Jesus has set us free is He set us free from our slavery to sin. At one point in time, before you were a Christian, you were unable to do any spiritual good in the eyes of God. Paul tells us you were at enmity with God. You were hostile to God, hating God, and not wanting to obey Him. And more than that, you lacked the capacity to obey Him. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. I I quote this all the time to you. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, It does not please him, indeed it cannot. Right? So in our the way we were born, in our natural state, we don't want to obey God, and we lack the ability to obey God. But now Jesus Christ has conquered sin on our behalf. And in conquering sin for us, we've been set free from the tyranny of sin and Satan, because Jesus has conquered them both in his death and resurrection. What does that mean? For those of us who have come to Christ in faith, we've now are being set free from sin. We are no longer obligated to sin. Second Corinthians five seventeen reminds us that the old man is dead, right? There, we are new creations in Christ, and we've been given a new nature through Christ that now has new desires to obey God and grow in godliness, and actually has the ability now through Christ to obey God. We've been set free from the tyranny of sin and Satan so that we can now obey God. Right? We, we can now actually do that which is spiritually good in his eyes. We've been set free from former slavery to sin so that we can now walk with God. And now flowing from that, right? what does that have to do with this? Flowing from that, we're now free from the unbiblical traditions of men you're probably wondering how does that work hear me out as christians we've been bought by god through his son in his person and work jesus set us free again i know i'm repeating myself but he set us free from sin and its power and its penalty why so that we would then belong to god and walk in obedience to who to god Now that we are, or now we belong to God. We do not belong to men. We do not belong to the world. We don't even belong to ourselves anymore. We were bought with a price. We belong to God now. We've been given these liberties through Jesus, this freedom, so that we can belong to God and obey Him. God alone as the one to whom we ultimately belong. He alone then has the authority to bind our consciences, He alone is God. He alone has the supreme authority to tell us what to do. We obey him above and before we obey anyone else or any institution or any tradition. This is part of what Jesus purchased us for. This is why we've been set free, so that we can obey God. And since we belong to him alone, and he alone has supreme authority over us, we can confess this. This is chapter 21, paragraph 2 of the 1689 Baptist Confession. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which in anything, or which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. God alone is Lord over our consciences and he has left us free. But where do we see that in our text, right? Look at verse 6. When the Pharisees questioned Jesus about why his disciples don't follow their tradition, let me tell you what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't apologize for his disciples, does he? Nor does he tell his disciples to get on it and go wash their hands. Right? He doesn't look at the Pharisees and say, Pharisees and say, My dad, they're really out of sorts today, man. He, in effect, Jesus says, they don't follow your rules because they don't listen to you. They're my disciples. They belong to me. They do what I tell them to do. They follow the word of God, not your word. Jesus has not apologized for his disciples not washing their hands. And in doing so, he's implying they don't have to. Because they're not the Pharisees' disciples. They're Jesus' disciples. Know this, Christian, just real quick. Jesus goes to bat for you. And I love that. And he doesn't take this kind of nonsense lightly but he affirms here Jesus affirms here that his disciples are bound only to the word of God nothing else only the commandment of God either explicitly stated or necessarily inferred from the scriptures this is Jesus if I could be so bold as to say this he is stating the doctrine of sola scriptura scripture alone scripture alone is the only infallible rule of all faith and obedience for the people of God Put another way, if God hasn't said it, then you don't have to believe it or obey it. Christian, you're free. You're free in Christ. You are free from any doctrines or opinions of men that are not contained in the scriptures. And you are especially free from anything that contradicts the word of God. God alone is supreme. He alone is Lord. He alone can bind your conscience and tell you what to do in matters of faith and practice. You are free to ignore everyone else. Let me make a quick note to you. If you are free and bound to God alone in this way, now you have responsibility then. It is therefore a sin for you to allow yourself to have your conscience bound by anything other than the Word of God. To blindly, and when I say blindly, I mean without asking for Scripture and an explanation of Scripture as proof for what someone is saying to you. If you blindly, Accept what someone tells you that God demands of you. That is morally unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable. Even if that person is me or Pastor Steve or anyone else who claims to be in, in authority over you. And why is it unacceptable for you to do that? Why is it a sin for you to blindly take what people are telling you? Because Jesus here tells us that we are to be a people who are governed by the word of God above all other things. It is then a show of disloyalty to God to blindly accept any commandments. You need to be a good Berean and search the scriptures to see if it's in there. An old phrase I used to say often when I first learned about this doctrine was sola scriptura or shut up. And I probably said that to a few people with a tone I shouldn't have said it to. There's a nicer way to put it. But you need to get that concept, at least, in your bloodstream. When someone comes to you claiming that God demands something of you, you need to hand them the book, the Bible, and say, first, you need to show me where God has said that. And if they can't, you are free to ignore them. Praise God. Now, let me continue on by getting a little more negative here with this doctrine. In light of the liberty that we have in Christ that he tells us about in this passage. It is a sin to try and bind someone's conscience apart from the word of God. It's a sin for you to blindly obey somebody, and it's a sin for you or anybody else to try to bind your conscience apart from the word of God. It is a sin to try and rob someone of the liberty that they have in Christ. It's kind of warm in here, isn't it? Maybe I'm just getting very angry because I hate legalism. It's probably a little bit of both. Anyway, it's a sin to give a commandment and treat it as supremely authoritative and binding on another Christian if God himself has not given such a commandment. Jesus actually implies that such a thing is blasphemy. He says in verse 7 that to do this is to treat man's commandments as if they were God's word. And what do we know if anything else? To equate human beings with God is blasphemy. To equate men with God is blasphemy. And that is exactly what legalism always does. It makes men equal to God. And that was one of Jesus' biggest problems with the Pharisees. Again, they claimed their traditions were from God himself, but they weren't. It's blasphemy. To take man-made rules and equate them to God's word is to fundamentally deny the creator-creature distinction and blur the lines between God and man. To take human rules and treat them as if they came from the mouth of Almighty God is to fundamental, or, or rather, to make man equal with God. And this is essentially no different than what the devil did in the Garden of Eden when he claimed to Adam and Eve that his words were of equal authority with God's. It's no different. It just comes in a new package. God is God. And he alone can give commandments that are morally and universally binding. Not only that, but the commandments of men don't stay equal to God's word for long, do they? They don't stay equal for long. Eventually, the tradition becomes more important than the word of God. We saw this explicitly in verses 9 through 13. The Pharisees' traditions weren't just considered equal with God. Once they really got a foothold in the lives of the Pharisees, the traditions eventually went beyond and made void the word of God. Verse 9 says that they build and put their tradition in place of the law of God. As I said earlier, the Jewish thought of that time was that the tradition was more important than the written word. So you can see there, they didn't stay their tradition and God's word didn't stay on equal footing for long. So brothers and sisters, see this here. And we can apply this to the Roman Catholic Church. We can apply this to redneck churches in the Bible Belt. Know this. There can only be one ultimate authority in your life. There cannot be two equally ultimate authorities like scripture and tradition. And I say that because eventually, here's what's going to happen. Eventually, man's word and God's word are going to come into conflict. And why do I know that's going to happen? Because human beings are fallible and can and do make mistakes. And whenever man's tradition or man's opinion comes into conflict with the word of God, you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to choose between the two. Scripture or tradition. God or men. And whichever one you choose has just become your ultimate authority. When the two contradict, the one you pick now is your ultimate authority because you just chose one over and against the other. Whichever one of the two you choose, you have just chosen to override and overrule the other one. There can only be one ultimate authority. And I pray that you will always choose the word of God. Now some legalisms, I want to I be fair. Some legalisms might start with what appears to be a good intention. You ever experienced that? Like a, a, a good intention legalistic rule? Here's what I mean. Here is the logic, and it's actually in, it's, it's eerily similar to the logic of the Pharisees. Here it is. If, if you obey our tradition, then you won't disobey God's law. And we want you to obey God's law. So if you obey what we're telling you to do, then you will certainly never even get close to disobeying God's law. Let me give you some examples from my life. <laughs> God says it's a sin to get drunk amen? He does. So the new rule then is don't ever drink alcohol. Why? Because if you never drink at all, you'll never disobey God's law and get drunk. If you keep our rule, you'll certainly keep God's rule. Seems fair enough. Another example, God says it is a sin to entice someone sexually unless that person is your spouse, and much of today's dancing is sexually charged. So the new rule is you can't dance. Because if you never dance at all, then you'll certainly never dance inappropriately and therefore break the law of God about being a sensuous person. I almost said woman, because that's usually the person being sensuous in our culture. Anyway, not always, but with the dancing, you've seen the videos. Anyway, music videos. Um, a third example. It's okay to laugh, Legalism's is dumb. Um, God says that we are not to think like the world. Amen? Be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And much of the stuff that we see on television and in movies is full of worldliness that can affect your worldview and cause you to think more like the world instead of thinking after God's own thoughts. So the new rule is you can't watch TV or movies because if you don't watch television or movies, then you won't be tempted to think like the world. You get the idea. We could, we could do this all night, man. <laughs> like, really, we could do this all night, and I'm sure if I don't have all of them, then you can help me think of more. And it can seem like those legalisms have good intentions, don't they? For real, like it sounds like they have good intentions. Because really that, what they're going to claim is we want you to keep God's law. So if you keep our word, then you're going to keep God's word. But hear me out. That's actually spiritual arrogance wrapped in piety. That's spiritual arrogance wrapped in piety. Putting a fence around the law of God, which is what the Pharisees said they were doing. Putting a, by, by putting a fence around the law of God, mere men are trying to do the work of God the Holy Spirit. And trying to do the work that only God can do is blasphemous arrogance because it's God's work. Such a legalist is trying to micromanage their brothers and sisters in order to make sure that they're attaining what they believe is a proper level of holiness. And that is God's job. Not only that, but such people are saying that they really know better than the all knowing God. Maybe you've never thought about legalism this way, they think that they know better than God. And I say that because if their rule should be obeyed in order to keep God's commandment, then God would have given us their rule instead of his. He's not stupid. right? That's like theology 101. God's not dumb. If God intended you to keep the rule of the legalist, he would have given you the legalist's rule instead of his own. This kind of legalism, adding man-made rules to God's law, is really claiming that men are wiser than God. Blasphemy. Furthermore, these traditions usually, if you grew up in a legalistic church, I'm looking out at most of you, if you, these traditions usually don't stay mere traditions, preferences, or opinions for very long, do they? Never. They never stay that way. Over time, they end up becoming equated with God's word itself, and that's why people in the Bible Belt, of which we live on the outskirts of, tend to say things like, it's a sin to drink, it's a sin to use tobacco, it's a sin to watch a movie, it's a sin to dance, even though there is no biblical evidence to make those statements. What's happened? The tradition has become equal to the word of God. And like Jesus said, many such things they do. They should make you angry. I'm going to paraphrase R.C. Sproul at this point. Legalism, by adding to God's law, actually subtracts from it. It makes us focus on man's rules instead of what God is concerned about. We begin to major in minors and neglect the major parts of God's word. Let me give you an example of this. No one will say this with their mouth, but this is de facto how it works out. It's okay for you to be greedy and waste your money so long as you don't cuss or drink or use tobacco products. How many of us know wealthy Christians who have been absolutely wicked with their money? spending it foolishly, not being generous whatsoever, but they are righteous because they have never said a cuss word or smoked a cigarette in their life. It's easier to keep the man-made rules than it is to actually obey God. So what do we do? We end up focusing on our own rules, and in doing so we gain a false sense of righteousness and feed our ego and our pride just like Satan. Brothers and sisters, know this. Legalism at its root does not want to let God be God. And that's the biggest problem. It's idolatry. No mere mortal has the right to stand in the place of God and give commandments. That authority belongs to Almighty God and God alone. No mere mortal has the right to take away the freedom and liberty that God has given to his people as a gift through Christ Jesus our Lord. God alone is Lord over the conscience and hath left it free. You belong to him. Not men. Now let me take a few minutes and try to do some cleanup here. Because we've got to make some clarifications. Because some of you think like I used to. (laughs) Christian liberty. This freedom from the commandments of men is not an excuse to sin. God help you if you think that that's the case. That's also a blasphemous thought. To try and use Christian liberty as a cover for sin... It is to take God and His word lightly, and it's to treat God as if He is not owed our obedience and highest reverence. God has set us free through Christ so that we might obey Him. Having been set free from sin and the traditions of men, we've been set free to be slaves to God through Jesus Christ. We've been given freedom to walk with God. That's real liberty. I'm serious. That's real liberty. It's true freedom. For you to now and I to now be able to do what we were created to do. For us to be able to do that which we formerly could not until Christ set us free from sin and its power and its penalty. When we walk with God, that is actual freedom. That's that's what we're free to do. So let me be clear. It's not like Barack Obama. Let me be clear. If you try to claim Christian liberty so you can indulge in some kind of sin... You are perverting the gospel and calling your entire profession of faith into question. Don't fall into the cunning lie of Satan that so many Christians fall into when they first learn about the freedom that they have in Christ. The lie that says you can do literally whatever you want and no one can ever say anything to you because you're free. The lie that says anyone who tries to talk to you or question something you're doing is a legalist. The lie that says you're free to disobey even the word of God because of liberty in Christ. Those are all lies from the wicked one. Straight from the mouth of the cruel deceiver who wants to make a shipwreck of your faith. Those are all lies that if believed and not repented of will send you straight to hell because God will not be fooled. His people love him and therefore his people love his law. And anyone who denies those things or walks contrary to them is a liar. Concerning their profession of faith and their condemnation, as Paul says in Romans 2, is just. Or rather, Romans 3 is just. So, brothers and sisters, I just want to be clear. Right? Because we're all like, yeah, freedom! Right? That's good. You should. But hear me. It is not legalism to strive for holiness. I wish someone would have told me this early on as a Christian. It is not legalism to strive for holiness. It is not legalism... To be very devout and strict and deadly serious about obedience to the word of God. It is not legalism to call others and yourself to repent, believe on Christ, and follow God's commandments as closely as you can. When someone challenges you to grow and mature in holiness, that's not legalism. It's not legalism if a brother or sister makes you uncomfortable by challenging you on a practice that you're doing. It's not legalism for a brother to come to you and ask if things, certain things in your life are a hindrance or a help to your growth in following Jesus. That's not legalism. It's not legalism for someone to ask you to question your own motives, actions, and practices and how they reflect upon the Lord Jesus. That's not legalism. Holiness is good. As Pastor Stephen preached last week, we are to be holy as God is holy. The people of God want to be like Jesus who was sinless. So it's not legalism to be serious about holiness. Don't fall into an immature way of thinking, because we've all seen it. Don't fall into this immature way of thinking that calls everyone a legalist who calls you to repent and grow up in the faith and obey God with diligence. That's not legalism. Remember, Jesus' problem with the Pharisees was not about how strict they were obeying the law of God. His problem was not that they were too strict about obeying God's law. His problem was the fact that they added to the law of God. They were super devout. If they would have taken that and applied it to the actual word of God, Jesus would have been pleased with them. I'm nearing the end now, and I just want to summarize this whole thing and then go into application. Christian liberty is part of the gospel. The gospel is way more broad than you've been saved from the wrath of God. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. And Christian liberty is part of the good news. It's one of the many blessings that Jesus purchased for us in his life, death, and resurrection. He has set us free so that we might belong to God, so that we can truly worship God, so that we can honor him and walk with him. He's accomplished this in his cross. And he set us free from the commandments of men. So that we can be free to obey God alone according to God's word alone. To obey God truly and not superficially as legalism would have us do. That's freedom. That's real freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom to ignore the commandments of men so that we can walk more closely with God. Freedom from the burdens and hindrances and distractions of man-made religion. Freedom from rules that give a false sense of righteousness and superiority we're free Christ has given us that freedom and we should praise him so some application for you it's very quick i have four things and i really mean it's quick if you have first if you have either outwardly or inwardly been condemning others for not following your personal scruples your extra biblical or unbiblical traditions you need to repent What you're doing, even if it's not to their face, even if it's just in your heart or maybe even behind their back, if you're condemning them for not following your scruples, you are no different than a Pharisee. And Jesus was certainly not pleased with them. You need to repent and know this. Jesus is ready to forgive and teach you by his word. Ask yourself this question. Seriously, am I a text-based Christian, a Bible-based Christian, or am I a tradition-based Christian? And if you're the second, if you're a tradition-based Christian, then you must repent and receive forgiveness from Christ who died to forgive even Pharisees. He saved Paul. He'll forgive you as well. Second, if you've been blindly following the traditions of men, not measuring The traditions of men against the word of God, even if they're reformed men, you need to repent. If you've been blindly accepting a tradition, even a good tradition like the Reformed Baptist tradition or the much broader Reformed tradition, if you've been blindly accepting that, you need to repent. If you've been saying, well, since John Calvin said something, it must be true, you need to repent. I love John Calvin. I want to name a son Calvin if I ever get one. But if you're just taking it, you know, well, the confession says this, without having searched the word of God to see if the confession is true, then you need to repent. Why? Because your allegiance is not primarily to God if that's what you're doing. It's to your tradition, even if it's a good one, even if it's true. You don't know it's true, though, because you've not been a good Berean to look in the word of God to see if it's true. Therefore, your allegiance is in the wrong place. Pledge your allegiance to your king, not our tradition. Renew your fealty to God alone and seek to please him more than you seek to align with any tradition, no matter how good or how high a pedigree it may have. Third, if you've been using Christian liberty as an excuse and cover for cherishing or harboring some sin, you must repent. You need to recognize that you are perverting the freedom that Christ purchased for you. And really you're being an ingrate. You're abusing grace. You're being an ungrateful child. You need to repent and look to Christ and know that he died to forgive even the licentious. He's merciful. And lastly, Christian. I tell you this all the time. Rejoice. I love this. I'm going to tell you this all the time. Rejoice in the real liberty that Jesus has given you. That's cause to make your heart swell. You are free from sin and its power and its penalty. You are free from the rules and traditions of men. You are free to obey God alone. You should be glad over that. That should make you smile. This is your blood-bought freedom. Happy Fourth of July, right? Independence Day. As a person who has been born again, this is your birthright, this freedom. You were born a slave. But you were born again as a free man. Praise God for this blessing. So then, cherish and fight hard to maintain this liberty. Our Lord paid much too high a price for us to cast aside our liberty and give it to sinful men who seek to control us according to their traditions. Do not put up for one second with the poison of legalism. Resist it to the point of death if you must. Do not give up your freedom that Christ has given to you. We're free. Praise God for it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son who has set us free. We thank you that, that we are free to serve you without fear, that we're free to ignore what's not in your word, that we're free to belong to you and you alone. We praise you and we thank you. And we, we pray that you would help us to repent that you would grant us repentance, rather, in any area, if we've been blindly accepting traditions, if we've been trying to put traditions on other people, whatever it may be that we've been doing, God, help us to pledge allegiance to our King, Jesus, over all things. And help us to walk with him as closely as we can. Help us to be a holy people and help us to be a holy people who truly hate legalism. May your name be praised forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.